Hi, I'm Dale Sherbeck, and welcome to the HQ, a CHA Learning and Healthcare Can podcast serial where we dive into healthcare issues and topics from the perspective of its people and discuss them with those that are leading in the health system. Together, we'll try to unpack these topics and learn what actions are being taken to innovatively solve them today. Welcome, listeners. So my assumption is that if you've tuned in for this episode of the HQ, it is because you're coming with an open mind in the full sense of the term. You're already woken to some aspect of the concept of privilege and the inequities and inherent oppression that may come with this. Perhaps you've listened to one or more of the powerful conversations I've had over the past year on equity, diversity, and inclusion, or you're a leader who wants to better integrate EDI practices into your leadership style or your organization's culture. Ultimately, I'm assuming that you're coming from a genuine place of wanting to learn more and what your role in this might be. And perhaps even more powerfully, you're asking, what can I do to change this? Can I be an ally for those that need help? And what part can I play in disrupting systems of oppression and discrimination? And yes, those are great questions and ones I've grappled with myself, but they don't come with a simple answer. And it is the hard part of this that will be the focus of my conversation with today's guest. If you have privilege, and by which I mean if you have any power to influence or change how these systems work, and you want to do something to help, hear my air quotes, others with less privilege, how can you do this without actually using your power, which would otherwise perpetuate the inequity? How can you be an ally without reinforcing an us and them archetype? In more simple terms, how do you avoid leveraging your position of control to become a rescuer? And yes, I appreciate, for some of you, this may be begging the question, why is rescuing even a problem? Ultimately, these are more good and perhaps very hard questions to ask, but no matter how hard, the conversation is critically important to any of us who really want to dismantle structural inequities and quite frankly change the world. With that, let me introduce to you today's guest, Stephanie Nixon. Stephanie is a Vice Dean of the Faculty of Health Sciences and the Director of the School of Rehabilitation Therapy at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Prior to taking on this role in July 2022, she was a professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Toronto for 15 years. Stephanie has been a physiotherapist and an activist scholar for 25 years. She completed her PhD in Public Health and Bioethics in 2006 at the University of Toronto and a postdoc at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa in 2008. Stephanie self-identifies as a straight, white, middle-class, able-bodied, cisgender, settler woman who tries to understand the pervasive effects of privilege. In particular, she explores how systems of oppression shape health and community care, research and education, and the role of people in positions of unearned advantage in disrupting these harmful patterns. Stephanie developed the COIN model of privilege and critical allyship as a way to translate core ideas about anti-oppression and anti-racism to people in positions of unearned advantage. So hi, Stephanie, and welcome to the HQ. Ooh, hello. What an intro. Thank you for doing that beautiful context setting. Thanks, Stephanie. Uh, I really, uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And I think your bio supports why we brought you here to join us for this hard conversation. But I think it'll be both interesting and provocative. And I hope it unpacks this for some of our listeners today. So I know your work on privilege has already received a lot of attention over the years. And you've spoken about it at length. Um, however, for many, your work may still be new. 
Um, so if any of our listeners are not familiar with your work and want to hear more on it at length, um, perhaps we can share something in our show notes at the end um, in terms of where they can find that or they can Google your name and the coin model and watch you sort of explain it at length as certainly as I have. Still, I think it's an important place to start. Um, so all of us have a similar starting point for the conversation that will follow. So perhaps we can start there. If you will help our listeners see this is something more concrete, you can even use me as an example um, and help explain um, you know, what this all means. I mean, so for myself, um, I know I'm a male, a white male living here in Canada, uh, a wonderful country, and I was born with privilege. So what does all that mean? Just that, hey? So what might all that mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, let's, I think that's what our whole conversation might be about today is trying to unpack that. What might it mean? And I love your offer of using you as an example. Let's also use me as an example, right? Like maybe we'll do that hidden curriculum thing right from the start and debunk the idea that I'm speaking to you here as some kind of expert on privilege. Given this body that I'm in, this white settler, straight cis body, I'll never be an expert on privilege. I will forever be in the practice of trying to have my positions of unearned advantage and my complicity in them revealed to me, right? I'll be trying to peel back those layers forever. That's my forever work. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm not showing up as an expert, then how am I showing up? And uh, as, as someone who is like you, and probably like a lot of the listeners on the call, who are folks that hold a lot of power in healthcare, formal power, mm -hmm. in many cases, senior leaders, um, and in other cases, informal power, just because of the bodies we're in. And so what does it mean to be in this work? Uh, what might the practice look like? And how might a coherent understanding of privilege help us to walk in a way that is lined up with creating a more beautiful future for all. Um, I know that sounds a, a bit obscure, but I, I feel like it's it's key right from the top to make clear that this there's this uh, quote model that I've developed. It's called a coin. I use the metaphor of a coin. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's called the coin model or the coin model of privilege and critical allyship. Um, and it's important to name that that's the, there's nothing new actually. The, the, all the ideas are old ideas. Mm -hmm. So my role here is as a translator. And what's key is that these ideas have come from Black and Indigenous struggle leaders who have known about these ideas for a long, long time and have yep. been trying to speak them exactly to people like me. And I haven't been ready or willing to listen. Mm -hmm. And so any of the ideas that are in uh, you know, other resources I've created around this coin model or that you hear today that are good ideas, it's important for every listener to understand these aren't mine. That these are the wisdoms of struggle leaders, folks who have been pushed to the margins. This information is very, very well known. Uh, but it has struggled to make its way into the health sphere. And so that's that the effort with this metaphor of a coin is to try and be a bridge, right? A bridge uh, around those core ideas, which I might call anti-oppression, right? Some folks might call anti-oppression, might also talk about it in terms of anti-colonial action, anti-racist action, mm -hmm. bringing an intersectional or approach or intersectionality. It's all those ideas. Trying to translate that for folks just like me, Right, who are sitting with a whole lot of power in healthcare, and yet by definition, uh, and I'm in the positions I'm in because I didn't take the undergrad courses that would teach me those things. Right, so it's trying to close that gap. Yeah. So that's a little bit of context setting about the nature of what I'm of these ideas. And do you want me to launch into talking about this coin metaphor itself to help us uh, get our heads around 
Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think so. Cause I think it's, uh, it's, I mean, simple enough, right. I think it's probably why it's, it's gaining traction, um, that others can perhaps use it to understand where they're, they situate in, in this space. So yeah, please, please do share that. Okay. So it starts with a, a, a fairly straightforward premise. And the premise is that the way that people who are sitting with a lot of unearned advantage, by which I mean, uh, me, I'm, I'm white, I'm straight, I'm uh, able-bodied, I'm cisgender, I'm a settler in this country. So these positions that I didn't do anything to earn, but just because of who I happen to be, they come with a whole lot of unearned advantage. When you sit with those positions, the ways that we've been taught to act in order to advance social justice, in order to advance reconciliation, in order to advance EDI, are exactly backwards, all right? They're 180 degrees wrong. Mm -hmm. And we need to do a full 180 degree shift to face the opposite direction with a different orientation to make sure that the ways that we are moving are lined up with actual change making toward a better future. So that's the beginning, right? It's, and it's quite a, it's quite a, I'm floating quite a premise here that yeah. everything we've taught about what's our work to do if we want to make a better world is wrong when you're sitting in a position of privilege. So that that's a biggie. <laughs> and I use this coin to try and help make sense of that claim. How are we doing so far, Dale? Good. So, so and just, I guess, maybe just to stop there. So the traditional I guess the orientation, you're asking us to change our orientation 180 degrees. So the, I guess if I can say the traditional, the typical orientation would be looking, uh, dare I say, down at people or, or I guess, what is the directionality in terms of where we might be looking if we are in a position of privilege? Yeah, great question. So what I'm going to do is use the metaphor of a coin to introduce what I would describe as a power analysis, okay. an analysis of how power operates in society. And what I would propose is that the facing the wrong direction version is one where we have an incomplete power analysis. So there actually isn't even directionality because those of us sitting in positions of privilege aren't even in the analysis. We actually get to be positioned as neutral, as disconnected as just showing up to be in this work because of our, our altruism or our courage or our generosity, right? Okay. And, uh, and that's what leads to an orientation, which I'm proposing is facing the wrong way, where we are set up to help and save and fix people who've been pushed to the margins, mm -hmm. right? And you're like, what's wrong with helping? And I'm going to propose everything, actually. Yep. Helping orientation, when you're sitting in a position of privilege, reproduces the systems that created the inequities in the first place as opposed to disrupt them. Mm -hmm. And that's that probably is like, what? <laughs> what? What? So I'm proposing that facing the, the what we've been taught forever is that our job is to help. Mm -hmm. And the 180 degree shift here, I'll just do the spoiler alert. Let's go straight to the end. The 180 degree shift, the orientation that does get us to, or, or uh, anti-oppression would say gets us to a better future, is one not of people in positions of privilege helping folks who are marginalized. It's actually one of collective liberation. Mm -hmm. Collective liberation. One in which people who have been pushed to the margins are not actually the problem. They are not a problem to be fixed. It's something else. There is a missing piece in our diagnosis of what is going on here. And that missing piece is what I'll reveal with this coin metaphor. But once we can get our eye on that missing piece, then we realize it's not about folks in privilege helping folks who are disadvantaged. It's actually about all of us 
leveraging the gifts we've got to work in solidarity to dismantle these oppressive systems in order to free us all. In order to free us all, my liberation, my freedom is also bound up in these systems of oppression. I need to work with the experts who are folks pushed to the margins in order to help me figure out my role and be deployed to dismantle the oppressive systems and especially the ones that play out through healthcare. So that's, that's, a, that's a big complex answer. And uh, this metaphor of a coin can help us unpack that. So I just wanna offer that if, if listeners sort of, if 50% of that landed for folks, that's great. <laughs> and we're gonna keep coming around this and, and get it clearer and clearer and clearer in terms of the picture that we're painting. Yep, sounds good. So, um, so I suspect, I mean, in terms of the way we're gonna continue then. So how does this relate then to, I guess, power and oppression, inequity in, in more general terms. Or... Yeah, perfect. Let's get into it. So here's the metaphor. So you can picture a coin and picture it uh, kind of hovering in the air, sort of horizontally. So we have the coin itself and there's a top of the coin and there's a bottom of the coin. So there are only three components to this metaphor. It's fairly simple. Mm -hmm. Let me introduce them to you. And what we'll do is we'll try and get a sturdy conception of this metaphor. Like we'll get the ideas down and then we will play with it. And it's playing with the coin that will help us understand why there's pieces missing in the power analysis that we've all been, been taught uh, and what uh, turning 180 degrees offers us in terms of what's our work to do as health leaders, right? That I'm going to propose that it once we can make this shift, it like opens up a world of possibility for real transformative action. It shifts very much how what is our work to do, and it, it actually feels better too, like it's an embodied experience. So anyways, back to this coin. There's a coin, top of the coin, bottom of the coin. Mm -hmm. In this metaphor, the coin itself represents an historic system of oppression, a historic system of oppression. Sometimes folks would call these systems of inequality, systems of inequity. These are the big isms Colonialism, racism, ableism, heterosexism, cisgenderism, so the isms. And what's crucial here to land is that these are social structures. These are big societal patterns that were created before any of us were born. We did not create these, these, but they were indeed created. They were created very intentionally in order for one group to deploy power over others. And these big isms are a legacy and they intersect with each other to create complex arrangements of advantage and disadvantage, that's intersectionality. We have inherited the legacy of these intersecting systems of oppression. And the thing is they're societal. Right. That we don't you might not want to have anything to do with it. It's like, oh, I don't like that. I don't want to be part of that. You don't get to opt out of society. Right. You can't remove yourself from society and be like, oh, not me. We are in society. We are part and parcel of the inside of these systems of oppression. So the question is not, am I affected by this? It's how much can I see how this is already operating in my space? And what work do I have to do to come to understand how this ism, not if how this ism is playing out in my clinic, in my classroom, in my research team, right? Mm -hmm. In my, at my soccer, uh, at, on the soccer field, at the dinner table, in my politics, et cetera. Okay, so that's the coin. The coin is the big ism. 
we're moving on. Scaffold, we talked about a scaffolding, right? In, in teachings, yeah. we're scaffolding on, we're layering on. So what's the top and the bottom of the coin then? So the top and the bottom of the coin are the places where we find ourselves, not because of anything we did, but because of how we're structured in history, whether we find ourselves on the top of a particular coin, and if you do, that's the domination side, that's the unearned advantage side. So for instance, the coin of racism was created by folks who have skin that looks like mine, by which I, I mean uh, is, is perceived to be white, okay? Mm -hmm. So because I, I'm considered to be white, I find myself on the top of the coin of racism. And what it means is I get an unearned advantage. It is unlinked to merit or worth or even my behavior it has nothing to do with what I do. All it has to do with is the color of skin I happen to have. Mm -hmm. And I might not even know that I'm getting this advantage. All right. I frequently don't. When you're on the top of the coin, you frequently have no idea <laughs> that you're getting this unearned advantage. But that doesn't mean you're not getting it. Yeah. You're getting it. It's just how much can you come to see it? And the bottom of the coin is the exact opposite. So when we find ourselves on the bottom of a coin, it means that we get an unearned disadvantage that others don't. And we did not earn it. We didn't. It's an unlinked to our behavior. It is unlinked to merit. We get it just because of who we happen to be. So the example here would be sexism. I happen to be a woman. Therefore, I find myself structured in history to be on the bottom of the coin, the subordination side of that power over um, structure. And does that mean I'm a victim? No. Does that mean I'm not powerful myself? No, I'm mighty powerful. But what it does mean is that I face a whole bunch of battles <laughs> that yep. I did not earn because I happen to be a woman. Mm -hmm. So the metaphor is system of inequality, and we find ourselves on the top or the bottom, depending on how we're structured in history. And of course, there are many, many different coins. We find ourselves on the top of some, the bottom of others. And it's those uh, multiple, and so do our patients, right? So do our colleagues, so do yeah. our students. And so that's the idea of an intersectional analysis is to consider which coins am I on the top of, which coins am I on the bottom of, and how do then those then combine to create a complex arrangement of advantage and disadvantage that's unearned and, and therefore unfair. So that's the metaphor. And I want to play with it in a minute, but Dale, how did that land? Does that feel clear or did it get too academic at times? No, I, that makes perfect sense. I'm, my wheels are turning as I'm trying to sort of uh, apply that to my own life and experiences and my own privilege. So yeah, I, I understand. And and I, I mean, to some degree, are you using the coin, I guess, as a, as a metaphor in this because of, um, not just because it has two sides to it, but also because of, you know, perceived wealth or, you know, monetization that comes with it as well, like a, the power of that we get from that? That's such a beautiful reflection. Here are three ways that the metaphor continues to work that are a complete accident. <laughs> so <Okay. laughs> I only directed it in the first place because of the shape. But there's three, I find three very, very useful extensions of the metaphor that have been offered to me, gifted to me. Uh, the first is, as you're noting, the direct link to capital. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, this is so tied up with capitalism. The idea of a coin actually uh, makes a whole lot of sense. The second, and this comes from a colleague of mine a, a, um, named Ed Connors, who is a Mohawk elder and um, educator I do a lot of work with. Mm -hmm. He talked about, about how how significant the introductions of coin the introduction of coins was as a tool of colonization. 
Mm-hmm. Right, because it shifted so dramatically the way of relating to each other and relating to the land, for instance. So a mm-hmm. lot of this work, especially because we're in Canada, which is a settler colony, right? It, it, it needs to be uh, deeply tied to an understanding of colonization. And so the, the symbolic nature of the coin for that is also really powerful. The third, and this comes from a, a comedian and performer named Shoshana Sperling, who I do a lot of work with. She uh, she noticed that often when I'm talking about this, I t- uh, sometimes I talk about the shifting, we're facing the wrong direction, need to move 180 degrees. Other times I talk about it as a sleight of hand trick, a sleight of hand trick and actually bring in some magic metaphors. And she's like, is that why you use the coin? Because it's a sleight of hand trick. I'm like, oh, yes, yes, it is. <laughs> or, no, it's not really. But I thought that works so perfectly. So yeah. So thank you for extending the metaphor with us. Great. Thank you. So yeah. So we're, I think I'm good. So yeah. To the to the the obverse, I guess, the bottom of the coin. All right, let's play with this coin. So here's the like, let's do some gymnastics here, both you and me, Dale, but also for whoever's listening. If you can picture the coin, like first do that work of getting it in your head. So there's that system of inequality, folks on the top, folks on the bottom. The there's this lovely kind of um, mental exercise to walk through to help us understand why we might be facing in the wrong direction, why we might be having a misdiagnosis, and it goes like this. If we start by putting our mind's eye on the bottom of the coin, all right, that bottom of the coin position. And in this metaphor, to do the math back in your head, like what's the bottom of the coin? Right, it's a position of unearned advantage, unearned disadvantage. It's not earned, it's nothing unlinked to merit. It's disadvantage that people get just because of how they're structured in history. They find themselves on the bottom of the coin. And then to ask ourselves, what are the common terms that we have to just general terms, not not specific coins, but in general, what are terms that we have to describe groups of people whose outcomes are worse because they find themselves on the bottom of the coin, you know? And it's things like vulnerable populations, yeah? At-risk groups, hard to reach, hard to serve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, is that sort of going, is that what's coming to mind for you too? Yeah, definitely. We've yeah. had conversations uh, about the the hard to reach um, or hardly reached. I think as as uh, others have, have described it um, uh, in previous uh, conversations on equity and diversity inclusion. So yes, yeah, that's a nice actual uh, like uh, I, I like that shift from hard to reach to hardly reached. It it shifts the yeah. responsibility, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've got this big wealth of terms: so disadvantaged communities, vulnerable populations, marginalized groups, hard to reach, hard to serve. Um, priority populations, key neighborhoods, and on and on the list goes, right? Mm-hmm. And you can picture this, like the just having gone through the last few years we have and the public health, uh, you know, it's so clear when we listen to uh, the news that marginalized groups have been harder hit by the pandemic, right? And so it's all, all that language we would hear there or in health professions education when we're trying to talk about justice, do better work for you know inequities facing uh, patients who are trans, so trans health, and, and what does it mean to you know, respond to the needs of that disadvantaged group, et cetera. Um, or indigenous health, right? Indigenous folks who, uh, you know, a, a group that's been historically pushed to the margin. So we've got this big language for the bottom of the coin. As the activity goes, we're invited to put our mind's eye now to the top of the coin and ask ourselves, what corollary language do we have? So what general terms do we have that accurately reflect the notion of the top of the coin? So what terms do we have that really reflect the idea of people whose outcomes are better 
because of the unfair advantage they received by virtue of finding themselves structured in history on the top of the coin. And it usually goes like beat two, three, we don't have any, <laughs> right? Yep. It's very hard to imagine what that language would be, like unfairly advantaged populations. Like when did we hear that during the pandemic? Mm -hmm. Like disproportionately and unfairly um, positively outcomed communities, yeah. right? Like the closest I think we could get in that's short and sweet is lucky, lucky populations, right? Because you yeah. happen to find yourself on the top. So the, the point here is that we don't actually have a language for the top of the coin. And just think about that for a minute. We have zero nomenclature. We have no vocabulary for the top of the coin in general, like specific coins. We have the, you know, I, I'm white on the top of racism. I'm able-bodied the top of ableism. But general terms like we have for the bottom, we don't have a, a vocabulary. So, which means we don't have a mind map. We don't have a, a way of thinking or talking about the top of the coin. Yeah, I think others may just sort of see it as as normal, right? This is where exactly you, where you want to be or where you're supposed to be, and it's. It, 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 not necessarily as a club, but certainly as a position of just normalcy. Bingo. Normal. And do that again, like the math in your head. Why is the top of the coin not normal? It's like, yeah, you know what? In this meta, this is why we need to get the metaphor so sturdy at the start, because the way we've been taught is to think about the top of the coin as normal. The norm. Like think of any of our outcome measures. The norm. Just the default beyond naming even there is nothing to see here do not name the top of the coin there's no language for it do not bring it into any of our discussion around edi right any of our discussion around the disproportionate effects of the pandemic or anything else there's no top of the coin this is a sleight of hand trick nothing to see here yeah okay and instead we're taught to think of it as normal why is it not normal it's not normal it's it's unearned advantage that's what the top of the coin means and I'll go one step further. My experience in doing equity and justice work, including my own, mostly of my own, is that we don't just disappear the top of the coin when we talk about this whole power system. We disappear the coin itself. Mm -hmm. Right? And all that's left is the bottom of the coin. All that's left are groups of people who have historically been pushed to the margins. That is the totality of our mental map when it comes to thinking about what's happening with injustice. Mm -hmm. And if our diagnosis is that the problem is the bottom of the coin, then that means that all our solutions will be, all our interventions, all our budgets, all our resources, all our imagination will go to solving that problem. And let's just say it again. People on the bottom of the coin are not a problem. People on the bottom of the coin are not a problem to be fixed. So going back to my earlier comment about we want to do better on inequities for trans folks, right? Trans is, people who are trans are on the bottom of a coin, but what is the coin? And who's on the top, right? Mm -hmm. Indigenous health. Indigenous folks are on the bottom of a coin of colonization. And you see how, how successfully we disappear that there's a coin or a top of coin by even framing the issue not as predictable inequities produced by colonization, but indigenous health. So this business of framing the totality of the problem as the bottom of the coin, that that's the diagnosis, that's what needs fixing, that's facing the wrong direction.
Because not only does it send us off creating solutions that are not to the actual problem, but it is a very quick ride from the bottom of the coin is a position of unearned disadvantage to this is a cultural flaw. These are behaviors of a full group that are irresponsible. The solution we need here, you know what it really is? Behavior change. We just need to teach those folks to act better. Are you with me? Yeah. 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 And I think, and I, I guess sort of building off of that in terms of other language, right? The, I guess the, the, um, the refusal for some right in power to acknowledge that we have structural um, or systemic right inequities right or like we have but we have structurals we have institutionalized racism or in or structural racism or whatever we want whatever the language is there and politicians or others in power would deny that that's even happening is is i think in your language um in the model that you're providing is the, is an attempt to disappear that coin right and, yeah. and to, to, to not acknowledge that those structures are even in place yeah yeah, that's great connecting the dots, Dale. Thank you for that. And let me take it just one step further. Like this, the diagnosis of the problem, like the the full, the, the power analysis that says the problem here is marginalized groups on the bottom of the coin. We're, we're starting to flat, like unpack why does that actually send our efforts at EDI backwards, right? And I'd like to propose, and, and I'll welcome pushback on this, most EDI efforts are based on that analysis, okay? Mm -hmm. So let's keep stretching it out. Why does this, and it's not because of lack of intention. Let's remind ourselves, this has nothing to do with intention. So there's a lot of folks in this world that are actively trying to, to you know, shut down any of this thinking that we're doing here. I find that the folks I work with in healthcare aren't those folks. Mm -hmm. Everybody's well-intentioned. The whole reason we're here is to try and create a better future. No one wants to be participating in making situations, you know, in healthcare worse and more violent for some over others. No one wants to be part of that. So this is not about intention. This is about us being unwittingly conscripted into upholding these unfair systems without even realizing we're doing it. And that how do we do that? It's this misdiagnosis of what even is the problem. So I'm just gonna take it, I'm gonna scaffold on one more step here to make this kind of thinkable, if that's all right. Mm -hmm. And it goes like this. How, I'm gonna frame it as a question again, just for us to kind of play with, and then we'll, we'll, we'll paint the picture of the answer together. How does disappearing the coin and the top of the coin allow someone like me who finds herself on the top of most coins, and I do, mm -hmm. if I'm on the top of most coins, how, and here's the thing, I've been involved in social justice work for 30 years. As long as I have disappeared that there is a coin or a top of the coin, which is what I did for the first 20 years of that three decades, how does it allow me to understand myself in my justice work? How does it allow me to be seen in the justice work? How, what, how does it allow me to understand my motivation to be in this work? Are you following? Yep. If there is no top of coin or coin, how does, it, how does someone like me who's on the top of most coins get to understand myself in this power analysis? Yeah, well, yeah, it's, um, it perpetuates, the, I guess, the, the opportunity for entitlement or something of that nature, right? Because I mean, you don't have to give up anything or change anything because you're not, right? There's, you're not part of the problem or you're, you're not part of the issue. It doesn't require enlightenment because you, you just, you keep the curtains sort of closed, I guess, at some level, right? Yes. 
Oh, that's so good. That's it, right? Like if there's no top of the coin, then where am I located in this power analysis? Nowhere. It has nothing to do with me. I get to frame myself as neutral, disconnected, right? I'm outside of the power analysis. The, the whole power analysis is just bad things happening to, and to people on the bottom of the coin. It has nothing to do with me. And that's what allows my, me to see myself in this work uh, and the orientation as altruistic. So am I suggesting that there's something wrong with altruism? I am. I'm suggesting it's a super dangerous motivation when you're sitting in a position of privilege because it reinforces facing the wrong way. It's not altruism or courage. And let's be clear. I feel like I've gotten awards for facing the wrong way, right? Global health awards. I might've gotten tenure on this stuff. Like it's so <laughs> baked into what is the right way to do change making. Yeah. And it's going to continue to be right. This is why this analysis is so key because it's not like, oh, we all see differently now. It's that for every, we're going to be uh, you know, encouraged to keep facing the wrong way. So it's not that I'm neutral. It's not that I'm disconnected. What am I? I am part and parcel of the power relation. I'm on the top of the same coins that folks are on the bottom of. And my unearned advantage is tightly connected to their unearned disadvantage. The coins where I'm on the bottom, my disadvantage is tightly coupled to your, Dale, your unearned advantage when it comes to being male. Not because of anything you or I did to earn it, but because of how we're structured in history. And so the orientation, the motivation for me, if I find myself on the top of a coin or a system of oppression that I want to dismantle, the orientation is not altruism. It's not courage. It's not generosity. It's a, it's a motivation that's understanding and based in complicity. I am part and parcel of this system of inequality. I didn't ask to be, but I am. That's how this power analysis works. And therefore, what is my motivation? Accountability, responsibility, mm -hmm. because of how I'm structured in history. Yeah, I'm, I'm following. I mean, um, and I, I suspect we, could, we probably could have another episode just on the challenges with altruism, perhaps, and charity, um, right, is inherently... Um, you know, perpetuating, I guess, some of these 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 structures in some respects so that I mean, Bill Gates can give away as much money as he wants. It doesn't change the fact that he still remains a billionaire, um, right, and feels good about himself at the end of the day, too, because of all the help that he's providing. I'm not saying that's not that helping isn't the bad. The helping isn't, you know, he's not trying to do good, right? But it doesn't change his position, I guess, on that coin, as you've been describing. You got it. And you know what that example illustrates beautifully, Dale? So what is the misdiagnosis? What is the problem that needs fixing here? Because once we can get the diagnosis right, everything changes. Yeah. So is it possible for us to imagine that the problem to be solved here is not people on the bottom of the coin? So Bill Gates and, and me and all a whole bunch of us in the EDI world and trying to do better in our classrooms and our labs and our clinics, trying to make things better for folks on the bottom of the coin. Of course we should be doing that, right? It's totally unjust that folks are having a worse and in many cases violent experience. Of course we should do that. But that's not the source of the problem. The problem that, that needs to be diagnosed is the system of oppression. It's the isms and how they're baked into our institutions. That's what needs dismantling. That's the prize that we all, top and bottom, need to keep our eye on. So the diagnosis is it needs to be the coin, that's the problem, and the unwitting complicity 
of folks who find themselves on top of that coin. So take a moment with just to let that land. If the problem is no longer folks on the bottom of the coin and rather the problem is the systems of oppression that are baked into healthcare and education and you name it because it's structured all of society and the unwitting complicity of folks on the top of the coin, then that diagnosis gives rise to a very different set of actions in terms of what might we do then, right? What might we do then? And if I can just land scaffold on one more point, what might we call it then if what we're talking about for folks who find themselves on the top of the coin to no longer be facing the direction that says you are the expert, you should be in charge of helping and saving those folks on the bottom of the coin. Because you can see how what nonsense it is now, right? Like we barely even know there's a coin mm-hmm. <laughs> on the top of the coin. Who are the community leaders that have been you know, leading social change forever? They're on the bottom of the coin. That's where the expertise lies. Meanwhile, who holds the budget, You know, the purse strings and the pen when it comes to writing policy? And it's folks on the top. So you can see how we're in this bind. So if it's not being expert, Right. And it's not, oh, no, we've got our act together on the top because and we need to help those folks on the bottom. It's like, what is the orientation then if it's not that? What is this 180 degree shift? And a language that I've given to the 180 degree shift, the orientation for folks on the top of a coin who realize they're on the top, that there is a coin and they're, they're on top of it. Once you can get that, there's what I have called this in the past. That orientation is practicing critical allyship. Mm-hmm. So I know you know you set up our discussion today so much with this idea of allyship. I just wanted to connect the dots to that. Yep. Maybe that's a language that we could give to this new orientation. Yep, and that's perfect. So um, that is where I was trying to set us up to go. I know that's not probably where we're going to end, um, <laughs> but. Um, but yeah, so if we're looking at, um, you know, answering that question, then so, you know, yes, I've got privilege, we all acknowledge that it is what it is, I am who I am. Okay, so now what, but my heart still, you know, I have, a, I have a good heart, I want to do better, I want to dismantle these, these, these structures, I want to uh, not disappear the coin, though, I guess, in some ways, we do, but in a in a positive way. Um, so yeah, so allyship is the way that I do that. If I'm right, paraphrasing back to you um, in terms of what that is, um, the critical part being, I guess, in an, um, doing it through awareness, I guess, right, of of understanding and uh, myself as much as anything, and my roles and parts and all of this. So what do I do? Where does that lead us in terms of uh, actions that I can take um, to help with this? Yeah, great. What a beautiful. Paraphrasing, Dale. Thank you for doing that. That's, this is hard, right? This is this mm-hmm. is tough stuff. And I really, yeah, I appreciate you you helping us reframe, reword, try and get our heads around this. It's it's a real invitation to imagine ourselves in the world differently. This is tough stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, to your question, which is usually everyone's most important question. So what do I do then? Wait a second. I don't want to be part of that. What do I do? Right? Because yeah. part of the premise is when you're on the top of the coin, there's no such thing as neutral. There is no neutral position, right? So there's no such thing as I don't want to get involved. There's no such thing as I'm not political. There's no such thing as not today, right? Like when you're on the top of a coin, we are reproducing that coin until we are not. 
You do not get to opt out of these coins. We are reproducing them till we're not. So that is a very different, so you can see how we're unwitting, you know, um, partners in keeping these coins along alive as long as we pay no attention to the role of our, uh, of understanding how these coins operate. So to your question, what do we do then? So the invitation is to reimagine what might be the gifts, because it's not to capitulate, it's not to say like, oh my gosh, sorry, I thought I had a big role here, I don't, I'll get out of this, I'll get out of the picture. It's like, not that at all. We absolutely must be in the picture. It's just the role is different. So the one that we've been taught facing the wrong direction is that we're expert, mm -hmm. that we should be helping and fixing and saving folks on the bottom of the coin. It comes with a profound entitlement that we belong in every space, in every debate, Every word in the English language and other languages are ours to to say. <laughs> we get to wear whatever we want. You know, like this is that this is the profound entitlement of like everything is ours. Um, and so, if it's not that position of expertise and saving and helping and fixing, then what is it? So it's setting that up to to let that go, to put that down, turn face 180 degrees the other way. And I'm going to propose that the two greatest assets that we have, and this is all of us, right? We all find ourselves on the top of some coin. So whoever's listening, pick one coin you're on top of to try and make this a bit more real. Mm -hmm. Two, There's two really powerful assets that we have when we find ourselves on the top of the coin. One is power and the second is safety. Okay. Power and safety. So let's unpack each of them. Power. I'm talking about formal power. So, uh, you know, there's vastly disproportionately people on the top of the coin who are in senior leadership positions in healthcare, right? And every institution. Why? By design. This is not an accident, right? None of the inequities we have are an accident. They are by design. The coins worked. They produced exactly the outcome we expected. They expected. So we, we are now find ourselves where people mostly on top of coins are the ones that hold formal power. But it's not only formal power, like institutional power, being the manager, being the CEO, being on the board. It's also informal power, by which I mean there's a reason that I am deployed by my Black and Indigenous partners to do this work. And it's because things that come out of this body compared to bodies of folks who occupy more locations on the bottom of the coin are just assumed to be, they're, they're given much more of the benefit of the doubt, mm -hmm. right? So when you say something as someone on the top of a coin, it's heard differently. Mm -hmm. It's And you know, the coins where you're on the bottom, you're like, yeah, you know what? I have to like say that three times or get someone on the top of the coin to repeat exactly what I said in order for it to be received. So it's this informal power, you know, the, the power to get something on the agenda. Yeah, good idea. Let's put that on the agenda. So there's this informal power as well that comes at the top of the coin. So how, we didn't ask for it, but we've got it. And so how do we deploy that account uh, uh, power accountably, responsibly, right? And I'll come back to that in a, in a moment. But first, safety. The other reason that I'm um, encouraged and work very closely with struggle leaders who occupy positions on the bottom of the coin to do this kind of work, because these aren't my ideas, right? I'm a translator here trying to make some of my own fraught journey a bit more visible to say like, gosh, we've got this. Like, come on, health leaders. We need to like come in here. We we can do better. Like, let's let's try this out. And it's fraught and messy, but we, we can do this. And it involves a big 180 degree shift. Why? Because I can do that work and walk with a kind of safety that folks 
on the bottom of some other coins uh, don't have as much ease with. I'm talking mm-hmm. personal safety. I'm talking professional safety. So how, I didn't ask for that, but I just get it because of I, those coins are happening on the top of. So how is it that we can deploy that power and that safety to act accountably? And here's again, like when we're facing the wrong direction, what we're taught is you are the one to fix this problem. That is not what the path to collective liberation looks like. As long as we on the top of the coin think we are, it's like reinforcing individualism, like you are the one, fix this. And for anyone who's like, that is a lot to hold. Like that is so hard to do, right? It's like, it's it's just the wrong orientation. It's actually the 180 degree shift is about working in solidarity. These big transformative changes, they always come through collective action. So it's about working across the coin, deploying the different gifts we've got, leveraging them and taking action, not individualistically. This is not me. You know, I didn't come onto this podcast saying, yeah, I'm going to do this. It seems like a good idea. I took this back to the struggle leaders I work with. I'm like, do you think this is a good idea? And they're like, yeah, get out there and do that podcast. Share those lessons we've been teaching you. Right. So it's actually acting with accountability to struggle leaders, not just anyone, struggle leaders, the folks who are expert in how to dismantle these systems who are on the bottom of the coin. So that is the reframe, using our power and safety to operate in solidarity with struggle leaders across the coin. Why? To deal with the real problem, which is the coin. To what end? Collective liberation. All of our freedom is bound up in this. Yeah, it, and that totally resonates with me. And uh, my own experience, I, you know, in, in a past part of my career in life, I, I, you know, I, um, I was an academic, I worked, uh, I taught um, English literature, um, and I was teaching overseas to my students, um, mostly women, uh, talking about, you know, 20th century uh, feminist works. And so we had to talk about feminism, the birth of feminism and what that all meant. Meanwhile, my partner, a woman, was teaching the same curriculum herself and was a card-carrying, self-professed feminist herself. Her students looked at her critically and with skepticism when she talked about feminism because of her position. My position, much like you're describing, because I was a man talking about this, was looked at... um, uh, I, I had the safety, right, to have that conversation. Um, I wasn't imposing something or taking away something. Um, I was having a constructive conversation. And, and so it was, it was very interesting to sort of behold that. Ah, oh, like the instant legitimacy that you had, that you were gifted uh, mm-hmm. compared to your partner. What a beautiful example. And, you know, if, if, if it's okay, I'll just extend it. Like we'll take that story and extend it to just scaffold on one more point here, which is, there's not just one coin for all privilege, all, all oppression, right? It's not that, so are you, are you privileged or oppressed? It's that for most of us, we find ourselves on the top of some, the bottom of others. It's complex. Mm-hmm. Same with our patients, our, our learners, our colleagues, right? It, it needs a far more nuanced analysis. And if we do anything in this exchange today, Dale, I'm ho- what I'm hoping is that we make it possible for folks to imagine this might be a thing. right we're just trying to open the door to this possibly being a thing so here's this the insight i want to scaffold on which is just because we might have a whole lot of insight around one coin does not automatically mean that we have insight about all the other coins Mm -hmm. in fact 
the insights, uh, the coins where we're on the bottom, those we normally know full well that there are coins when we're on the bottom, right? And we normally can tell full well how they operate. It's the coins where we're on top where we don't even realize it's a coin. And you can see just picking up your example, like around feminism, what the coin, I guess the most common feedback I get about this coin is not that it solves our problems for us, but that it gives us a little mind map and a little bit of a language for getting our heads around these complex issues of power. So to apply it in the context of feminism, you know, we have a coin of sexism. And in the story that you shared, it was a beautiful illustration of how your position on the top of that coin, even though you probably did the same thing that your partner who's on the bottom of that coin, you delivered the same classes and yet you were conferred a whole bunch of legitimacy she was not, mm -hmm. right? Well, let's add on more coins. So we know that you take the coin of racism and there's been pushback for years and years and years that feminism, a lot of the work that's happened there has assumed whiteness, has mm -hmm. actually not also taken into consideration the intersection with the coin of racism, right? That this, this feminism that is being taken as the whole story is actually nowhere close to the whole story because it assumes the top of coin locations on all the all the rest of the coins, right? So that pushback, or take it a step further. You know, I, uh, earlier in our exchange, I was talking about inequities faced by trans folks, mm -hmm. right? Trans health. If trans folks are on the bottom, what even is the coin? What is the coin that has produced the exclusion, the violence for trans folks? And we can call it cis-normativity, C-I-S. So the top of the coin is being cisgender. I'm cisgender. And being cisgender is not better than transgender. It's just two different ways of being in society. But within this power over frame of the coin, cisgender gets positioned on top. Why? Because of the coin of cis-normativity, which teaches us mm -hmm. that there is one right way to be. And in the case of being cis or trans, and recognizing that dichotomy is even a bit narrow, but let's just stick with it now for teaching purposes. Yeah. In terms of cis, cis and trans, this is an example where this coin is so powerful that we, a lot of people have heard of trans, lots of people haven't even heard of cis and certainly don't have the idea of cis normativity or cis sexism as part of their nomenclature, right? Their vocabulary. So it's completely off the table. All there is is trans people, trans health. Listen, trans people are not a problem. The problem is the way that cis normativity is baked into healthcare and education and for some feminism. And that's where we see some of these battles right now around feminists who do not want to include women identifying trans folks in mm -hmm. the movement, right? Yeah. And rather are trying to keep say there that coin has nothing to do with us. When really what an anti-oppression analysis gifts us is an understanding that all of these oppressions are linked and that a tactic of the systems of oppression is to try and keep the movement separate, try and make sure that folks never understand how their oppressions are actually deeply interconnected. So there's a, yeah, so I have a, a dozen questions that are going through <laughs> my head at the same time here, <laughs> which may take us a little bit off our, our path here, uh, Stephanie, but um, so maybe I can just sort of note them to you and we can see if where we can weave them in, uh, if that's possible. One is, I guess the question is, I mean, how do we become reflectively aware of our, of our privilege and power? Um, if it's not obvious to us, I think your examples of, of cis power as an example is one that, right, many people born with a certain, um, gender sort of 
perception anyways of themselves haven't really reflected on what that even is or what right and what power opportunities come with that um the other question i guess is 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 trying to i guess reflect this back into healthcare itself more specifically um and how does this show up so that we can i guess our listeners in particular can sort of see how this um uh you know, it expresses itself in, in our, our healthcare systems and, and services. And the other question I have, and that might be part of that uh, conversation, but I, I guess when I'm reflecting on many of the different coins that you've described, and I appreciate this, this is not the end of them all, but they do seem to stack up a lot in terms of our, our, our health determinants or right the, the population health sort of perspectives, right? So those, each of those determinants is in is a coin at some level, isn't it? And and has impact on on health outcomes, not just in terms of the other aspects. You got it. You got it. That is it, Dale. Like, just a short trip down memory lane, okay? Sure. I went to school for all these things that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. A couple of undergrads, a clinical degree, a PhD, a postdoc, all in these topics. The stuff we're talking about right now never came up once. I learned so much about the social determinants of health, and I did so in a way that was completely devoid of a coherent power analysis. And that's not by accident. It's by design. We, we were never meant to be having this discussion, Dale. Right On the top of a coin, we are meant to never see ourselves as part of and complicit in a coherent power analysis. It's like some version of the matrix, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so it was only well into my career that I was like, gosh, I keep doing, you know, I did a lot of global health research for a long while in Southern Africa, and I was in that space so much. And no matter how friendly I acted, no matter how much I tried to mitigate power imbalances, I found myself consistently put on a pedestal. And I was like, How, what's going on here? Why is it that I cannot act my way, out, behave my way out of this power dynamic? I'm talking post-tenure. Like, this is so far into my career when I finally got to asking the questions that matter, which is, wait a second, might my whiteness have something to do with this? Might my colonial position, my class, my cisness, you know, all of that, even getting those questions. And why is it that none of this ever came up in all those degrees I took? Right. So this is, I, you know, just to make clear, it's not like I've understood this stuff forever. It's like the last decade of me reckoning with like, holy swear word, like I have been doing all this work to try and create a better future. And, and it's this is the sleight of hand trick. I think on the surface, you know, there have been some great tweaks, but because I was facing the wrong direction, everything I did just re-entrenched the deep root problems that we already have. Mm -hmm. So I, I tell that short story to connect it to your question around social determinants of health. Exactly. So Let's just take a moment to ask ourselves, where was the power analysis? Every time we hear about the social determinants of health, where's the coin? And going forward, every time we hear anything about social determinants of health, anything about inequity, about EDI, ask ourselves, where's the coin? Because that's a problem that needs fixing. Do we have our eye on that prize? And where is the naming and illuminating of the complicity of folks on the top of the coin? Because that's the other problem that needs fixing. Mm -hmm. And how much are folks on the bottom of the coin being framed as the problem so that we can unlearn that and undo it? 
So the social determinants of health is a beautiful example um, of the kinds of, what do social determinants of health look like if you're facing the old direction and, and what, what, what concerns do we have about it and therefore what actions if we're facing in the 180 degree? Yeah, it it does. I mean, it's yeah, it's it's sending you know vaccines and vaccinators into you know certain neighborhoods, right, to knock on doors and and right help and save people, right, um, right, but doesn't sort of dismantle the structures that have those people living in those neighborhoods to begin with and not being able to access the health services or you know other things on their own, like those that are as you coming back to the earlier part of the discussion, those who are lucky enough to live in other parts of our cities. Yeah. And who are the struggle leaders already in those communities that are fighting incredibly hard to make things better and that have all this expertise, but because they don't have the legitimacy that those of us who are inside of the formal health system have, it's much more difficult um, for their wisdoms to, to be shared. You know, the, the idea here is not consultation, this is another one of those, like it's so slippery. So this is this is why it's forever work. And this is why we need to surround ourselves. So when you were asking earlier, like, what do we do? Like, how do we actually get at this? Step number one is we need to surround ourselves with people who understand this better than us. And by this, I mean an anti-oppression analysis, an anti-colonial and anti-racist analysis of how these coins are operating in healthcare. So A, we need to have a community around us of people who will both support us, but also hold us to account. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where it starts to we can start to imagine a bit differently that it's not we'll hold all the power and we will consult with people on the bottom of the coin. That's not the point. The point here is the actual material redistribution of power and resources. It's actually shifting power and who holds it. And that can be a bit scary, right? But the the examples, now that I'm actually in this world of living it, not just talking about it, but trying to live it, the more I do that, the more liberated I am in my roles and the better the outcomes keep being. The, I'm better at my job the more I release power through trusting relationships with struggle leaders to, to arrive at these solutions together. It's just a dramatic shift in answering the question, what's my work to do? And, and that might be one of the core, you know, um, seeds to land here is the invitation to the question, what is my work to do? And the answer is, it depends, you know, where we find ourselves structured in history. And for those coins where we're on top, what's our work to do? It is to do a whole lot of learning and unlearning about how that coin operates. And instead of learning about trans folks for trans health, it's learning about what's cisgender identity? What even is that? And how is it that I actually uh, reflect that and, and, and reproduce it every single day? So I guess coming back to that question then, how do your advice or suggestions for people to do that, to gain that, that, um, that self-reflection opportunity to, to discover their, um, their privileges in, in this? I mean, do we send them everybody sort of back to do a, uh an undergraduate course in terms of uh critical sort of theory and in terms of understanding our power and, and opportunities or are there other ways that that you know i appreciate you've you've walked your own life and and to to have these um epiphanies if that's a right word or right opportunities to sort of see yourself and see your place in this world in a different way but how do you how do you suggest for others um, especially those in healthcare. 
You know, there's been a, a slippery slope that's happened around this idea of learning and unlearning. It's so mm -hmm. fundamental to the work that needs to get done. I think in a lot of cases, it has become the proxy for the work. As mm -hmm. if, if we're doing the education and the capacity building and the awareness and the workshops and the book clubs, then we are doing anti-racist action. We're doing anti-colonial action. We're doing anti-oppressive practice. We are not. Uh, and so I... I, I Absolutely, all the different ways that we need to do learning and unlearning, we need to do that. Mm -hmm. We just need to not be fooled that that is the work. That is a pathway to or a or a, um, a part and parcel of doing the work, but that the actual work is the material redistribution of power and resources. And that work for every single one of us can start this minute. We hold a ton of power and we hold a ton of safety. And all of us working in healthcare are surrounded by people on the bottom of the coin who have been trying for years to advance ways of doing differently in healthcare. And it's the invitation to imagine not showing up as this is mine to fix, but how might I stand with someone? How, who, who might be out there, you know, who within our organization, we have these great Indigenous leaders or out in the community, we have Indigenous leaders telling us this is broken. This is not working for us. What if our approach was not, I'll go consult with them to figure out how I'm going to fix this to, gosh, I need to learn about colonization, how it shows up in healthcare, my own settler status. And while I'm doing that learning and unlearning, I need to build respectful, trusting relationships. I need to earn the trust of these struggle leaders so that I can stand with them to be deployed my power and my safety to help advance and mobilize in collective action with them. Mm -hmm. And you can swap in and out any of the coins. It's like we've got, you know, I just did a study recently on the way that heteronormativity shows up in physiotherapy clinics. You got a wonderful groups of queer leaders in physiotherapy ready to help my own profession of physiotherapy understand its heteronormativity that produces inequities, right? It's that we have to stop thinking about queer folks as the problem and heteronormativity as the problem and our own reproducing of it when we are straight folks. So on and on, but it's that, that's that shift to wait a second, the problem is the coin, my complicity in it when I'm on top and what's my work to do? It's to build trusting relationships with struggle leaders on the bottom in order to mobilize my own power and safety to be part of this broader movement for change. Yeah, well, and I think certainly one of the, the points is that yeah, we have to certainly not be focused on checking boxes that we've done cultural safety or sensitivity or whatever kinds of workshops that you described, checking boxes, right, to say that those things have been done and therefore that will lead about change. I mean, they may start change, as you, I think, as you described, but that is not the end. Um, and I, I think as you're describing of working with um, you know, the, the, the oppression leaders and those that are doing the work um, themselves um, in engaging in conversations and right, community building and, um, uh, you know, compassion, right? All, all these things that would sort of create dialogue and opportunities of listening in, in particular, um, as we certainly talk with uh, whether they be, I guess, models perhaps of people-centered care, of, of again putting people at the at the focus of that and and asking and then listening um to their stories and perhaps is that creating opportunities for enlightenment through that journey yeah yeah that's right and you know another one of the um prerequisites for facing in this new direction 
is setting free the requirement to be perfect. Mm -hmm. Is setting free the invented expectation that we can't make mistakes. That the most important thing to do in justice work is to make sure we don't make a mistake. As long as we hold on to that, then we're going to stay facing in the wrong direction. Because this other direction, the 180 degree shift, she is messy. It is fraught. It is so uh, complex. And there will be mistakes. There will be. And part of the way these, another tactic of the systems of inequality is the way they're embodied. So uh, just to share that a message or a lesson I keep learning over and over again is that we cannot think our way out of systems of oppression. Okay, we cannot think our way out of systems of oppression. We need a coherent intellectual analysis, and that's a lot of what we've been talking about here. But it's more than that. It's actually embodied as well. And others would say it's much more than just embodied, right? It's spiritual and, and beyond. Um, but to this point about the embodied nature of Listen, we have been, when you're on the top of a coin, we have been socialized forever to have actual physical and emotional responses to learning about our complicity in these coins. These deep waves of guilt or, or shame or overwhelm or sometimes anger or denial if people bring our complicity to our attention. And they're not an accident. This is not an individual personality flaw. This is by design, right? Why? Because it shuts down any possibility for progress. It shuts down the learning that I might do. You know, someone, because this happens with regularity, right? People say, Stephanie, what you just did was ableist. Stephanie, what you just did was racist. And as long as I face the wrong direction, as long as I have no coherent power analysis, as long as I think racism is not structural, but is actually something bad people do on purpose, then if someone tells me that what I did was racist and I will receive it as them telling me I'm a bad person and that I did something on purpose. I'll, I will spend all my time trying to convince them they understood me wrong, mm -hmm. right? Or I'll get so upset with them. Why are you attacking me? And I will cry. Uh, and what that does is shuts down any possibility for my new learning and shuts down the possibility of trust earning with that person. They had the courage to let me know this, to give me that feedback. And I did not receive it. Once we can shift 180 degrees, when we make a mistake and someone brings it to our attention, when you're on the top of a coin, the whole point is to have your complicity illuminated. So, so we need that feedback. And even if the feedback comes in an angry voice, it's a gift. Mm -hmm. And so instead of receiving the feedback as a personal attack, it's receiving the feedback as, oh my gosh, thank you so much for letting me know. It's showing up with an authentic apology. I am so sorry. It's managing the flood of emotions that's going to come anyways, but doing that maybe with your white accountability buddies, in my case, around racism. Um, <laughs> but it's receiving that feedback. And it's these mistakes. That's actually what leads to better trust. It's owning it. It's changing our behavior. It's showing in our actions that we are learning and growing. And that's what will we'll deepen the trusting relationship with, with struggle leaders. So bringing this back then, uh, Stephanie, to the, the concept of allyship, then, um, you know, and I, and, and I think, you know, you, you've, well, I, I'm pretty sure you, you've touched on this, I think, through the course of the conversation, but maybe we can be explicit about it in terms of this part. Um, you know, so, I mean, you, you've talked about it at the beginning that, you know, in, in the coin model itself was talking about trying to, to foster allyship as well, critical allyship. Um, and, you know, certainly we hear more about, you know, people with privilege using that privilege 
to help and, and be allies in this. But I think you've also been talking about that that is in itself not the end game and not enough. So let's pick this up from there maybe and and say, you know, you know, what is wrong or imperfect with this concept and where do we need to take it further? Oh, I love that. I love that question. So let's do that thing where we say like, all right, um, if I was in a classroom right now, I'd say like, everybody take a moment. What might be the shortcomings of the notion of allyship, given everything we've just discussed about facing one direction and we need a 180 degree shift, mm -hmm. right? Because I think this is the beauty of this work is we're trying to collectively build a more coherent power analysis. And then we can apply that power analysis to something like the concept of allyship. So back in 2019, I published this coin model of privilege and critical allyship in an academic journal and it's an open access article and it's gotten a lot of uptake. And at that time, which means I wrote it in 2017 and 18, mm -hmm. at that time, I found the phrasing practicing critical allyship to be the least worst option. Okay. I have changed my view since then. Uh, and this is, I, I appreciate the invitation to, to unpack this a little bit. Even bringing in the idea of shifting from an ally noun to practicing allyship verb, and from ally noun without a power analysis to practicing critical allyship, where critical in a theoretical sense means concerned with power. So it kind of works. But what I've found is that we are so facing the way we've been taught to face. It's just so deeply ingrained in us that our job in allyship is to be nice. Hmm. It's to be kind. It's to stop other people from doing bad things. It's it it it's about often there's microaggressions workshops that frame it not as what are my, the microaggressions I'm doing all the time but how to intervene when a bad apple over there does a microaggressions like it just misses the power analysis that it's not if our classroom is reproducing racism it's how it's baked right in right and so for me I'm finding it's just too difficult to uncouple the idea of helping and kindness for, from allyship. And so I've, I've, I've been playing with a, just a lot of other words that I find more helpful to my own mind map. Um, there's a wonderful anti-oppression leader that I've learned so much from, a Black Canadian woman named Rania L. Mujamar. Some folks might know her in social media as at Rania Writes, like writes a story, Rania Writes. Um, she has lots of good language for this, but I've picked up in particular, she talks about radical solidarity. So what if instead of allyship, we talked about radical solidarity? Other folks talk about being co-conspirators, accomplices. And I'll tell you my absolute favorite, Dale, this is the one. And the invitation is like, what resonates with you, right? Like what works for you? Here's the one that works for me. And it comes from an African-American physician out of the U.S., this incredible woman, Idioma Nodim Opara. If you want to be, have your like light life lit up on social media, this woman just, oh, she <laughs> fires it up every time. So Idioma Nodim Opara. She, to, and she claims other people came up with this term, but I got it from her, co-liberator. Mm -hmm. Co-liberator. It's just so beautifully connected to this orientation that we are, it's all of our liberation that's bound up, right? It's about collective liberation. And so what is the practice of someone on the top of the coin who wants to dismantle that coin? It's to be a co-liberator. Yeah, I, I, and that, yeah, I think as you're describing that, I mean, I had certainly visions of sort of moving from, you know, that Lord protector sort of perspective of, you know, the knight sort of, helping and defending um, to someone who's actually getting in 
you know, the trenches taking off, right, all their uh, the artifice and, and sort of working in solidarity, I think, as you describe, right, um, getting your hands dirty and, and being one with, um, but, but acknowledging, I guess, that you are still bringing, whether that certain privileges or tools or, or right, things that you can use to support in that, that space that are unique to who you are. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's very helpful, uh, Stephanie. So thank you for that. Um, I know that we're, you know, we're probably getting close to time in terms of our conversation here, but um, do you have a sense of, you know, if this, you know, there's, you described the people in healthcare, you know, writ large, you know, their hearts are in the right place and they want to creating health, right? They want to create prosperity and wellness for everybody within the system that they're serving, um, though that term perhaps is part of the problem I think reflecting on what we've been talking about <laughs> um, but nevertheless uh, what do you think is getting in the way of being able to achieve this um, in healthcare more specifically and <laughs> and, may, and maybe sort of if I can just sort of bookend that um, um, you know what are what what are some of the opportunities i guess for, for our leaders to help manifest this as an outcome as well yeah yeah i, I was when you're saying what's what's the biggest thing that's getting in the way i'm like easy easy answer for me a coherent power analysis we're not meant to have one as health leaders uh the number of spaces i find myself in where we have bought brought the best brains together to talk about uh take a topic like healthcare access for instance Mm -hmm. Right. The reason we would talk about that is because there's lack of access. We know that lack of access is uneven. It's patterned. It's by design. It's according to these systems. And yet there is zero or minimal, <laughs> not overestimate, minimal capacity for a coherent power analysis of what is at the root of this problem. And so instead, we 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 come at it from a from just a, a perspective that misses um, over, you know, over and over again. And it's and I'm not pointing fingers at others. I'm pointing fingers at myself. That is my biggest challenge in trying to be a, a healthcare leader is trying to constantly build this more coherent analysis of how are these systems playing out now. And I'll tell you, when I came into this role, so it was a year ago that I started this role here at Queen's as a vice dean in the Faculty of Health Sciences. And the dean here is Jane Philpott. Um, and in my discussions with her about this role, I had finally got myself sorted out in Toronto in terms of my all lined up where I, I understood anti-oppressive practice to be at the heart of all of my activities, professionally, personally, research, education, leadership, and at home. So like I finally got lined up and, and then got this invitation to consider this role. And my response was, I would love to, to work with her, right? She's, Jane's one of my heroes, but, um, but I can't do it because I'm too busy uh, really dedicating myself to interrupting white supremacy and its intersections with all the other systems of oppression. And her response was, no, that's why we want you to come here. And I was like, oh, geez, touche. All right, I'll have to take this more seriously. So I considered it and sure enough, it, it, it was authentic. Mm -hmm. And so I actually had it written into my contract at Queens, not just one line about EDI, but by EDI, I mean and five full additional sentences, this beautiful paragraph that I co-wrote with Lana James, one of my great solidarity partners, to really flesh out what I understand that commitment to mean. It very, you know, lined up with what we've been talking about today. And now I understand my role here as a health leader, as anti-oppressive practice, 
in every step. Like it's not just like the big projects, it's the nuances, it's the it's the little minutiae in the day of being a health leader where I'm constantly asking myself, okay, how is whiteness as a power structure playing out now? How are colonial patterns playing out now? How is heteronormativity playing out now? And trying to surround myself with folks who can help me understand it better. Because here's the thing, that's just not normalized, is it? Like that is just not what we see role modeled around us in healthcare. Like this version of, of how we might move as health leaders, I would propose, is, is almost at this point still an imagination exercise. It's just so not centered uh, and normalized and like, oh, of course, you know, you can look at all these folks who are, who are doing this radical work uh, in, the, in their health leadership role in terms of anti-oppression. So yeah, at this point, the biggest challenge is even trying to imagine what this might look like <laughs> and then trying to mobilize it in a way that is accountable, right? That's not just willy-nilly, but that's accountable where we are surrounded by folks who to whom we are responsible. Is it, maybe I'm being provocative here, but is it is it enough for, I mean, we're seeing lots of organizations um, hire or place sort of, um, you know, high, high executive level type of people in charge of EDI or right indigenization or anti-racism or whatever the ism again they're trying to sort of bring into focus. And and I'm I'm not trying to be glib about it, but but they're but they're hire, hiring high profile people into those roles. Um, is that you know is that the right way to approach it is 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 that a good start you know to to helping manifest some of these things and and create those maybe a, a different kind of lens on allyship yeah great question you know my invitation would be to say this is why we need a coherent power analysis if we're facing so in all these things we can like this this particular example is uh you know a senior leader who's tasked with or mandated with some kind of EDI role. But let's let's imagine anything could be placed in there. Is it a this course we might want to offer? Is it this um, new policy we want to create? Is it starting, is it reading this book? Is it using this language or that language? Like whatever it is, how might we understand the positive and negative effects of that if we're facing in the old direction? Mm -hmm. Versus how might we understand and move if we were facing in the 180 degree shift. So with the person sitting in the position, a senior position, as long as we're facing in the direction where there's no such thing as coins or any problem with the top of the coins, then we get to think, phew, I'm glad we solved that problem. Mm -hmm. You know, good, this person's gonna take care of that. And it shows to all of our donors and our staff and everyone around us that we are taking action and it's meaningful, right? But you can imagine, can you see how that is the sleight of hand trick where it does on the surface some things that is really helpful, but it's so undermining for that person. There's no way they can be successful in that role if they're expected to be the one that's going to hold and take care of dismantling the systems that are baked into healthcare. Like you can just see how that's a, res that's a recipe for changelessness. Whereas if we do the 180 degree shift and say like, okay, what's the problem? The problem is the way that these systems of oppression are baked into healthcare and the complicity of folks on top. How are we going to address that? Great news. We have one more person on our team who has we've brought in because they have some expertise around this. Mm -hmm. Good. How can I deploy my power and safety to stand with them to collectively 
try to uproot the way these systems play out day in, day out in our healthcare setting, right? It's a, just a very different orientation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think that's great advice for our health leaders and health organizations that are trying to, you know, I think with good intentions, trying to, to grapple with this. But I think as you've been describing over the course of our conversation, right, you know, good intentions are you know, are not enough um, if we continue to be oriented in, in the wrong directions, right? So, um, so yeah, some of these things could be done very positively, I think, when, um, when done with the same opportunities for criticality and, and self-reflection, which is certainly the messages that I've been taking. So um, I really feel like we have just started our conversation here, Stephanie, and <laughs> I know that there's so much more to, to talk about. Um, and I hope that we haven't left our listeners with just a, a lot more questions, but maybe that's a good thing. They can write in with their questions and say, so where do we take this conversation if we were to have a part two? But um, any sort of final words to you, Stephanie, sort of to bring closure to this a little bit. Um, and uh, with, with, you know, sincere thanks for the time that you spent with us here today. Yeah, this has been so special, Dale. Um, you know, again, we, we're not meant to have this conversation, and yet here we are, making this speakable, making this thinkable. Yeah, I'll just, if it's all right, do a few quick parting things. So the first is 100% of the times that I've done this kind of capacity building work, the feedback I've gotten at the end is, wait a second, what just happened here? <laughs> and where could, I need to do that one more time. And like, I caught some of that, but I missed others. Mm-hmm. Is Are there more resources? And so just to pick up on a point you made at the beginning, yes, there are a whole bunch of open access resources on the COIN model. Um, that you can find them on my faculty page, but we'll also put a link, I think, in the show notes. Um, the second is... The only thing I'm sure of is that I made some mistakes in the last 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. This work is fraught and it's messy. And I'm sure there's things that I said or did that, uh, that there are some folks on the bottom of those coins are like, "Mm -mm, that's not how I understand it or put it. I'm already wondering what did I say about feminism and did I get that right? Like this, this constant unknowing. And so I just wanted to make, um, very welcome the idea that anyone who's listening, especially folks from the bottom of various coins that I'm on the top of, if there's things I didn't get right, it would be the greatest gift if you let me know. So that kind of feedback is is always welcome. Uh, and part and parcel of being in this work accountably. So, and then finally, just to say, this is hard what we're doing here, Dale. Like, I have a whole bunch of emotions right now. My And physically, I'm like, my heart is going fast and my head is hot. And I just wanted to offer that this work is embodied, that trying to, whenever we start dismantling these coins, it shows up physically. So to honor for you and me, and maybe folks listening that that self-care, self-compassion is a really crucial part of this story. So for each of us to drink lots of water, go for a walk, be gentle on ourselves, um, today as much as we can. That's part of being in this work for the long game. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's that's great advice um, on all those aspects. And and I echo your 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 uh, your thoughts in terms of any modeling that I've perpetuated through this as well. And we're <laughs> we're all we're trying, right? Um, and and learning together. Um, and uh, this is not, you know. Uh, not a fixed point destination it's it's it is just a point in in time but um so yes let's all keep learning together and yeah and i and i think certainly to be compassionate with each other um that uh, as part of that so um so thank you for 
uh, for those sage words, your wisdom and uh, your own compassion um, to share this with me today, Stephanie. Um, I am truly grateful um, for all that you have given. And I do look forward to having a second part to this um, at some time in the future. So thank you again. Thank you. Okay, take care. You've been listening to The HQ, and I'm Dale Sherbeck, your host. You can find this and other future episodes on the CHA Learning website, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think, so please follow us on our other social media channels. Thanks for joining us in this discussion today. Please join us next time.